Hey everyone, it's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, The Last Nighters, and The Last Nighters can be found on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. Tonight is episode 97 of the show. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 97. We are talking about They Shall Not Grow Old, Peter Jackson's documentary take on the conflict, uh, now known as World War One. It's a bringing to life account with footage that is over 100 years old, coupled with interviews that are about 50 years old, mated together with modern technology to bring vibrancy and color, including sound effects and lip-synced audio to bring you a never-before-experienced look at the horrors of the Great War. Um, tonight is uh, our pal Mike C. will be joining us for this discussion as the stars went out of alignment with our previously scheduled guest, Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute, who has penned an excellent review article of this movie, and I will post that on the show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 97. Uh, it's, it's a very good take, and I know that a lot of our discussion with him would have kind of circled around that, so um, I think that because it fell through, uh, we're going to have other things to talk about. So you can read that and listen to this and get even more content for your hard-earned dollars. Uh, something along those lines, right, Robert? Yeah, something like that, Daniel. Yeah, something like that. And if you do like what we do here, we do pre-show and post-show content available for our Patreon supporters. So you can hit us up at lastnighters.com slash Patreon and uh, find out which levels get you which goodies. Um, but uh, Mike C., our guest for previous shows, uh, most recently being The Warriors, one of his favorite movies. How are you doing, sir? Thank you for filling in uh, while Jeff is uh, unable to make it as he's with Ron Paul this weekend. So I guess he had like different priorities. Ending the Fed? Something along those lines. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty it's, good priority. Like, from, from what I've learned uh, solely uh, by memes, that's the only real uh, information I have about Ron Paul is that that's all he does is attempt to end the Fed. It's a, it's a pretty noble cause. And I might add that, that Ron Paul was a very important and influential person in my life. He's he's the one who kind of planted that seed and got me over to the libertarian anarchist philosophy that I now hold. Fair enough. Yeah, him and Bernie Sanders, of all people, teamed up to try to get an audit of the Fed. Um, it ended up passing eventually, but it was too watered down to do anything by the time it got through. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting, the, the bedfellows desperation mix. Yeah, I do recall that. And, and that was back uh, a time in my life when Bernie Sanders actually kind of made some sense to me. And so I was actually on his mailing list for a while. Nice. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I remember him talking with Ron Paul and, and seeing his name mixed in there. And I think that was my gateway into into Ron Paul, actually. Hmm. Fair enough. Yeah, I used to like Tarantino as well. You know, you grow up. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> no, well, I'm, I think I think becoming an adult is realizing that uh, Guy Ritchie does what Tarantino would want to do, but just better. Guy Ritchie? Yeah, absolutely. Aladdin? No, he he didn't do Aladdin, did he? They force him. He makes these movies and they bomb, and then they force him to do movies that like will make money. Like he's currently doing, uh, basically like you know the the third iteration of the Snatch and um, Lockstock. So they forced him to do Rock and Roller after he bombed two movies, and uh, now he's bombed a couple more. So he has to like pay his dues again before they give him the hundred million dollars to make an action film. I have heavy, heavy doubts. He hasn't made a good movie since Lock, Stock, and Snatch. Uh, Man from Uncle was good. Yeah. Revolver is fantastic. Swept Away is good. I even like that uh, one about King Arthur. So wow. Okay, if you don't like it though, that's fine. We can we can be like a Tarantino and a Guy Ritchie guy. We can. Yeah, yeah. You guys, are, you, you can be like the Coke and like Pepsi a, here. It's like pinball and video games or dog people and cat people. Well, as as much as we like you, Mike, <clears throat> I did share your recommendation for Under the Silver Lake with Robert. And he was like, well, what's that one about? And I'm like, I don't really know, but uh, Mike really recommends it. And he was like, well, we know what movies that Mike recommends are like. So <laughs> I got a friend like that. Yeah, he, uh, he saw Terminator Dark Fate. Uh, and I said, oh, what, what do you think about it? And he's like, oh, I really liked it. And I'm like, that's all I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's woke. That's all you need to know. Yeah, that's the one living at home, by the way. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, Mike, you want to you want to mention uh, any of your goodies for our audience? I'm sure they're familiar with you so far or at this point, <sighs> since you've been on uh, with us uh, five or six times at, uh, by now. Uh, oh, like my SoundCloud? Yeah, yeah. Your SoundCloud yeah, okay. got some new yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's on kind it. of the only only thing that I'm doing that's getting out there right now. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm on SoundCloud. It's Mechanical Dream Revolution. Um, it's really kick ass. It's getting better every day. So go check out my new album, Don't Fuck Kids. <laughs> which is kind of a PSA style, uh, 1930s PSA style is the, the motif. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good trance in there and like a bunch of, I don't know, it's like experimental. Like, I don't even know how to describe this genre at this point. No, yeah, it's 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 a good, it's a mix of uh, copyrighted content along with uh, other copyrighted content. 
mixed in with some beats and some <laughs> news clips. And it's it's actually pretty compelling stuff. I, I give it a fair number of listens. And you, you did mention the PSA style. Um, what was it? I watched Death of Stalin not too long ago. And, and they oh, literally yeah. had like a, a poster like, don't eat your children. Um, yeah, the Homodor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so that that's like Peter, before Peterson got uh, caught uh, being a meth addict, um, he was on, he used that, that was one of his staple sort of attack patterns as he'd talk about how, how the commies had propaganda posters to not eat your children or not even just PSA posters to not eat your children because of the starvation that occurred under Stalin, right? In um, the Ukraine, I guess? Yep, because parents need to be told not to eat their kids. Well, they do if they're starving, I guess. And you've... Um, made the I, individual such a uh at, like such a negative concept that's like completely outside the realm of their thinking that they just see other people as cogs and machine and children as food if you're at a point in your life where you're thinking about eating your kids i don't think a poster is going to sway you one way or the other yeah no fair enough well it's kind of like yeah it's kind of like the anti uh like like a a campaign to be like, don't rape girls. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, I know. But I don't think that that's going to convince rapists. Yeah. It sounds, sounds I mean? like, sounds like the whole gun control argument. Yeah. Like, well, the well, cr- criminals aren't going to no, no. have the... a gun and not need it. Then <laughs> anyway, speaking of guns and, um, horrible events, uh, let's talk about they shall not grow old in world war one. Uh, so we normally start out with the Google description and just a reminder, this is episode 97 of the show. Show notes more at last nighters.com slash 97. You can find the links to Jeff Dice's uh, movie review and also Mike C's Mechanical Dream Revolution SoundCloud profile where you can listen to uh, the music that he has created there. It is quite good. All right. So They Shall Not Grow came out in 2018. It's a history slash war movie, two hours and 12 minutes, 8.3 IMDb, 100% Rotten Tomatoes, and 91% on Metacritic with 95% of Google users liking it. The description reads, using state-of-the-art technology and materials from the BBC and the Imperial War Museum, the uh, filmmaker Peter Jackson allows the story of World War I to be told by the men who are there. Life on the front is explored through the voices of the soldiers who discuss their feelings about the conflict, the food they ate, the friends they made, and their dreams of the future. This came out in uh, Russia and Canada on October 16th, 2018, had a limited release in the United States uh, shortly thereafter, and made $19.9 million dollars at the box office. Uh, Peter Jackson was a director. Um, I read that he uh, uh, looked at over 600 different interviews um, or 600 hours of footage. It took him about a year to uh, figure out what he wanted to include. And he accepted no payment for his work on this. Um, So that is the description. And uh, I'll go to Robert first and then we'll go to Mike. So Robert, your take on that and then anything you would like to open with. Well, it definitely seemed like a labor of love. And at the very end of the film, he does say, like, this is for my grandfather or something like that. So it, it very much seemed like somebody that wanted to do something in remembrance of the people that mattered to him in his life. So, yeah, the one thing that really strikes you when you watch this film is, well, first of all, the footage. I've never seen World War One look this good. Uh, the only time I've seen video of World War One, it's been black and white, grainy as hell, tiny. And of course, there's never any sound. Because, yeah, they didn't have microphones and whatnot back then. So Right, and, and the frame rate's all care. off, right? So it like, kind of looks uh, janky. Yeah, but this is all smoothed out. Like you said, it's colorized really, really well. I mean, it's not perfect, but how could it be? And, yeah, like there's the overdubbing that lip syncs perfectly, or almost perfectly with the, the video. It's impressive. It's impressive technical achievement. And then it's also kind of unique in that... It really is just a bunch of grunts telling their story, the good and the bad, and not really interjecting politics into it, you know, even though that's what I would want to do. But it really is just, you know, turning on the camera and the microphone and interviewing these guys about what they experienced. And in that, I think it's a fitting remembrance and memorial for these guys and what they went through. Um, I think it turns out to be a anti-war film just because of the nature of it. They don't really shy away from showing the the bloated corpses and the, you know, the rats and the muck and the garbage and the filth that they had to deal with on a daily basis, on a constant basis in the trenches. Um, I've mentioned many times uh, the hardcore history podcast that I've listened to by Dan Carlin, who does a, I think he did like a 25 hour take on world war one. And he really gets into the idea that the, the muck that was created and they, they show it in this film these they have these pathways you know like just like wood 
pathways. And if you fell off, you're pretty much dead because you get stuck in this muck and it's like quicksand and you fight and you struggle and there's nothing anybody can do to get you out of it. And so then you just eventually suffocate and die. And it's just horrific. Um, I was glad to see that here. I didn't know if I was going to get to see all the things that I heard in the podcast. And of course, he goes into greater detail about the World War One and all the, the different battles like the Passchendaele and the Verdun and the Battle of the Somme. And he gets into those details. And this movie doesn't do that. It's more of a broad overview and really, a, you know, just the perspective of these kind of guys from England. But they I got details here that I didn't get in the uh, in the podcast um, with, with the you know, them getting like boots that were really stiff and that they had to pee in them to, to soften them up and just little details of how unprepared and they just, you know, threw these guys into this situation, how untrained they were. And like, you know, you would imagine they're doing all these like calisthenics and a few things, but then they're just thrown right on the front line and, you know, just thrown into this meat grinder. Um, the, if you want to know more about World War One, I, I highly recommend the podcast because it does talk about the the way the strategies and the way they fought this war really was this horrific meat grinder where they just threw wave after wave of human bodies at her in this war of attrition to just try and grind out this victory. And it really just massive human toll in this in this war. Anyway, uh, it's a good movie. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, any any uh, thoughts from you, Mike, on the description or anything that Robert has opened with? Uh, I forgive Peter Jackson for making The Hobbit. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, everything he said, like, uh, technically, it's amazing. I don't know how they achieved this, uh, but it's very objective. Uh, he doesn't get into the he doesn't get bogged down uh, with the politics. And I mean, I guess it's like if you wanted to fault it, I guess you could say it's like one sided, but. I'm not sure how else to tell a story. They they certainly cover the propaganda and excitement and the inversion of our best qualities to the will of the state, uh, which is a horrific betrayal of your people. Uh, without getting into it, they just kind of he just does the interviews and shows some of the posters and propaganda and stuff like that, and uh, and then just kind of matter of factly talked about the just horrific conditions that the soldiers had to had to survive him so right yeah no they were in there for so long that they became desensitized to all of this to where it didn't even affect them any longer or they could laugh at a corpse and like the, the guy was smoking a pipe you know or they would put a pipe in in this bloated corpse uh as a joke because their oh, what do you do yeah their humanity had had shifted so much based on the trauma that they all experienced well and then drinking water out of a gas can right right with still the stale remnant of gasoline taste and like I mean, I, right. I thought drinking out of my kids, um, you know, what plastic water bottles was bad. Uh, <laughs> I, I ain't seen nothing. No, we, uh, we got it pretty easy. I think about that every day, like running water is pretty sweet. Electricity, um, access to gasoline, like all of this, like, uh, you ever watched Downton Abbey? Yeah. Yeah. I actually yeah, wanted yeah. to bring up Downton the first Abbey. season plot line was world war one. Right. And, right. And how excited everyone was. Uh, yeah. And just, up to it. But you just think about like the living conditions, like what, you know, like an elite person even would, would have is in terms of comfortability and like uh, quality of life and what a peasant, you know, right. so it's just, it's just interesting seeing like a hundred years ago, how people were living and like what they would put up with on a battlefield, like just sleeping, sleeping in the mud, like no one rebelled against it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, in a lot of ways, I think it wasn't all that different for the average person. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it like uh, exactly like, oh, you know, of course, their average life is like being in war, but basically they weren't coming from a high, comfortable place, right? No, they were like lower middle class, right? Right, yeah, and so they didn't have all these modern conveniences and, and any of those things, so their their lives were pretty bleak. They probably, um, what was it, like uh, 100 years ago, people didn't travel more than like 10 miles from where they um, yeah, grew up true. in their so entire they, life? Yeah, well, they even talk about it, like uh, near the end, they started talking about brothels and how the, the experience would have just been so much more uh, lively than whatever they would have grown up in. Right, yeah. As teenagers, you know, 19-year-old guy, like encountering a French brothel, it's pretty out there. Right, and then, him. you know, the Downton Abbey thing, um, they, they really did play up the excitement that everyone, all the characters had in the run-up to the war. Yeah, it's all just so fun. And, I mean, apparently that was actually a real thing. Um, people were excited about this because there was a long period of relative peace in Europe uh, for a long time. And I think wars had sort of this nostalgic reminiscence quality that, like, 
was well, noble. Well, if you think about uh, in terms of, because that would have been the colonialist era as well, right? So, like, the last war Britain was in was the Zulu War, where they're mowing down Shaka Zulu's troops with the Maxim gun, right? So, right, right. So, so they I'd see rather that, be on that end, right? Yeah. So, so it doesn't seem like it's that uh, terrible um, if you're on the winning side. And well, also you're you're just... going out. You know what I mean? You're expanding from your position. You're not. Um, yeah, like it's a very uncivilized war. World War One. Like, like they weren't. They used chemistry for the first time, chemical weapons. You know, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Well, and the, like, and the big the big distance between wars allowed for a massive technological advancement. Yeah. And, and, a, so, and a big forgetting. Right, and they didn't understand. Like they had this idea that war is this grand adventure, and you know you might get winged or whatever, but you, you know it's not in super horrific conditions. But they didn't understand that this massive shift in technology had increased, and like all of a sudden you got these massive artillery batteries, yeah. and you know the chemical weapons, like you say, and you got airplanes actually, and yep. machine guns, and like the French went into World War One with hats, cloth hats. Yep. Like a like having no understanding, like people are still riding like horses. I mean, turns out horses are actually better in the muck and the mud than some of these early machines. But yeah, yeah it was just a, a world that was unprepared, didn't understand. Like the politicians didn't understand it. And the, and the the men that were going in to fight it didn't understand how technology had changed war until they were faced with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we get the first tanks at the end, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the beginning, I think they open with um, talking about the, the people who are first entering the war they won't recognize it by the end because they go yeah. in with this conception that it is sort of this civilized version that they'd heard historically and it's nothing like that yeah well yeah because they're still thinking of like cavalry charges with horses and that sort of like heroic last you know charge of the light brigade kind of stuff when a, ch- a cavalry charge against you know fixed machine gun and placements aren't, aren't going to really do too well no that's why we yeah we invented that specifically as a counter to the current tactics realistically like we had guns and it's like moving moving yeah sorry getting to the strategy and like how it's just interesting how we um we develop weaponry as like basically we develop a weapon specifically for the conditions that exist and then everything the entire paradigm shifts to machine gun installations and artillery and then we invent tanks because we need a way to get past machine guns you know Constant arms, yeah. arms race in the literal sense. Like you're always trying to outdo or overcome. I remember um, I played a game uh, on the PlayStation, like Panzer General, and mm. each of the different uh, armaments and different kind of vehicles and things you had had different abilities. Some had more defensive, some had more offensive, and you would have to strategically place yeah. them and, and use them, maneuver them uh, to cover your flank and you know make sure that you're not going to sustain a bunch of damage and then you know defeat the enemy. And, and you kind of see that um, you know in, in real life kind of happening and and Somebody, I forget who it was that said this, but you're always like, um, in your preparations for the next war, you're always arming yourself as if you're going to be fighting the last war. And I think yeah. that's... Well, the very, French especially. Right, and that's very true with World War One, as we're discussing here. Yeah, yes. the marginal line for... Yeah, i got to try very hard not to talk about World War Two. So yeah. I'll just say, I'll make my one comment, which is that the French were prepared for World War One in World War Two. They got really used to the ideas of it. And they're like, okay, we'll have this big... We'll we'll make the trench, but we'll make it out of like concrete, and we we'll, won't have like water filling up inside of it and mud. It'll be great. And we're like, yeah, the Maginot Line was very much an antiquated design as soon as they were done building. But like that's my point, though, is everything is right. Like you know, you get ships, ships with cannons. Like cannons, you know, is, has its lifespan, and like you'd have to build a fort. Like castles didn't work anymore because they couldn't withstand the artillery. So you had to build a fort that had cannons on them, and they they built like these sort of triangular designs and. The engineers were completely different mindsets and it's just like all this infrastructure has to go into it, you know, and all of this research and development. And then you're, it's only for one iteration. They have to move on to the next thing almost immediately. Yeah. There's a couple of um, forts near us um, where Robert and I are that are on the Puget Sound and and they're on various um, sides. So it Mm -hmm. creates a triangular um, firing zone for any foreign vessel trying to enter but they were built in like, I don't know, 1880s and they were only active through, I think, World War One, maybe. Yeah. You know, no, they'd be useless in World War One because the artillery would go further. So they would have been OK. Or were they, it sounds like they would have been for earlier stuff, like Civil War era, ironclads and such. Yeah. Yeah. Probably would have been more effective versus ironclads. Yeah. So and it is, it is a really interesting period, right? Because like ironclads are around for about 15 minutes <laughs> went from like 
<laughs> we went from like uh, wooden ships to these weird iron ships that were steam powered, and then immediately moved past it because it was just kind of retarded. And you know what we should do? There's a movie called uh, oh, it's Matthew McConaughey called Dirt, where he's looking for a sunken, sunken, uh, <laughs> uh, what's it called? Ironclad in Africa with filled with gold. Is it called Dirt or is it Mud? I, I know he's in a movie. Oh, called Mud, maybe. I don't know. Something like that. Okay. No, Mud's a different story. I think Mud's like a, a right. sad dad taking care of his kid or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I don't mean to derail this. I just. No, no. We'll, we'll look it up. We'll look it up. It's a much more lighthearted killing in those kinds of movies. This was just, yeah, there's a lot. Um, yeah, it's very sad. Like, World War One makes me very sad. Uh, I mean, they all do. But, like, the, just the story about the soccer. Like, that's pretty common known. And I don't know, like, I, I'm pretty sure that's true. I don't think that's just some myth because it doesn't serve, it doesn't serve like, like the, the Christmas tree miracle. The Christmas yeah. Miracle? Like that doesn't no, serve I, the state, right? Right. No, we need, thing. Um, and there's other, there were, there were cases of like French and German soldiers being armed and encountering each other off the battlefield and not killing each other, like getting, like shouting at each other and telling each other to fuck off and not knowing the language and throwing rocks and stuff at each other, kicking dirt. And and then just going their separate ways without even considering shooting each other, mm. which is just I don't know. So like that's that's like you know it, that tells you a lot about humanity and what it takes to get people to shoot each other. Yeah, um, yeah. When you were so, mentioning the soccer thing, you were you were talking about the Christmas miracle where there was like a ceasefire and then they fraternized with the enemy. Yeah. Um, but I thought you were talking about in this movie, they shall not grow old. They actually talked about how some of the commanders would get their people to charge by actually kicking a ball and having oh. everyone follow it. And I thought that was really sad. Yeah, that is pretty sad. So like men, men like orders. We like being told what to do um, in relationships. A lot of problems can be solved if women tell men exactly what they want and give them tasks. And then men do the opposite. But we speak different languages, right? So the male brain really, that's why we fall for joining up and being in the army and why it's actually kind of enjoyable because you have a task. Um, you know, there's structure to that. Like it, it's it's quite satisfying. They talked about how like it was kind of it felt like camping and would, when they weren't having to shoot at each other, just kind of like hanging out with the boys. Yeah, and it was quite telling how they kind of got comfortable towards the end of the war. How they had been, you know, I don't know, conditioned or to acclimated, maybe. Lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, these are the guys that are being interviewed are the ones that made it, the ones that survived. Of course, they're not the ones that got horrific shell shock now known as PTSD back in the day, shell shock wasn't even understood. It wasn't even a thing until world war one. And the men that got it were seen as cowards and were often murdered by their own company men for not, you know, being seen as cowards, like as, as a betrayal or trying to go AWOL or something like that, or because they wouldn't fight. Or even in, in this movie, they said uh, some of the guys were screaming and they thought it'd be giving away their position. And so they would shoot the guy. Morale too right right sure. but yeah and, and then they shoot the guy sort of like in um that tom cruise movie we talked about a couple of years ago where you're like tom cruise kills this guy to keep the aliens from finding him you mm-hmm. know, what do you think because if if the guy isn't quiet they're both gonna get found and get killed yeah so it's a cost benefit analysis <laughs> right although i mean that's the insanity of a guy is screaming and you can hear them over the sound of the detonating explosions kind of oh no they're gonna know where we are over the deafening roar of the thunderous bombs. Hitting. Oh no! I, yeah, I think it's more about the morale because I just I don't think it's like um, a broken window in a neighborhood. You don't want to you don't want to let them do that because you're going to have disorder and you want to keep everybody uh, not thinking about themselves as people or their fear. You need them to go kill other people that they don't even know, right? So it's you really got to nip nip that in the bud. Yeah, so it'd be yeah. a good trade, right? If you kill one of your own soldiers to keep everyone in line. I wanted to bring up another uh, point Work from. For from a movie we talked about a while ago, um, Legends of the Fall, where the dad character played by Anthony Hopkins, he was in World War One, and so he witnessed these horrors. The no, no, oh, was it? No, Hopkins was not. He was in like the war, the Indian American Indian War. Oh, right, Ooh, right, yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and, and but, that but was World War One. Were going into World War One, right? And they were super excited about it. Okay, yeah. so yeah, Hopkins had experienced war conditions more recently than apparently people in england had um so he yeah the was, last one that would have been the zulu war right something like that yeah and and also um england had sort of given off this air of their prosperity was due to their colonialism and that's actually a fallacy it didn't actually it, it was not a net positive for them it was very costly it was the industrial revolution and and mm-hmm. you know their 
improved industrial base and capacity that actually improved the living standards. Um, but because the, the impression was that, oh, you go out on conquest and then you'll reap all these spoils that incited Germany, Italy, uh, Spain, Portugal to have like all of these uh, encroachments around the world and compete for, you know, the Italians were busy collecting deserts, as Ralph Reiko uh, says in this really great talk on uh, World War One that I will post on the show notes page. Um, uh, and that's just kind of related to the hardcore history that Robert was talking about. There's a bunch of stuff at the Mises Institute that is really just excellent on the politics uh, around World War One and what it allowed um, governments to do in uh, something called the ratchet effect uh, that Robert Higgs talks about. Um, Rothbard has an essay called World War One is Fulfillment uh, for the Power uh, and Intellectual Elite um, that's related to his uh, book, The Progressive Era. And then, of course, uh, there's a, a great book called Cost of War uh, that is highly recommended. So I'll post all that on our show notes page as well. Um, but uh, anyway, I didn't mean to derail us too much there uh, with my little plugs here. Um, who did I, who did I cut off? Was it Mike? I don't know. I'm used to cutting people off. So. <laughs> But if you want to talk the uh, the origins of the war, uh, Carlin does talk a lot about the the spider web of alliances, like yeah. the uh, the I mean all the uh, European you know elites are all intermarried, like they're all cousins or stepbrothers or whatever, and you know you had like Germany or England pledging to protect Belgium, which was allied with you know Spain or France, you know it's just all around, and basically what happened was when you know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand got assassinated in Kosovo. Or was it Serbia? I forget. Anyway. Serbia? Oh, no, the Serbian killed him. Yeah, no, it's a Serbian national. Yeah, in, in Kosovo. Right? had a parade there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gavrilo Princep, I recall his name. Anyway, um, it just triggered this series of, you know, so-and-so declaring war on these guys and these guys and these guys. And, yeah, it just Cascade. this cascading shit show. Um, that I, it's, it's, it's easy to paint the Germans as the bad guys after the fact with a whole bunch of war propaganda about what they were doing in Belgium. But I mean, if you look at all the alliances and whatnot, it's, it's, it, yeah, they were the aggressors kinda, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's I did not the hand so waving thing. Yeah. It's um, England was looking for a fight with, uh, with Germany for a long time before that they were out producing. Right. So, so when, when a, when a group of people is out, outperforming you, you need to go in and like fuck them up sometimes. Yeah, and of course, there's the whole uh, lulling the U.S. into the war with Lusitania uh, and and Woodrow Wilson, of course, running as a candidate who kept us out of war. And then he, of course, had ulterior motives and got us into the war. Yeah, I would even the Lusitania is essentially a false flag. They they put it in harm's way on purpose, right? And it's a British liner. It's carrying arms against uh, whatever the rules were. And if I recall, there was even um, full page ads taken out in The New York Times warning people not to go on the boat because it was going to be treated as a warship by the Germans. Yep. They warned them there. It was within their domain that they were patrolling. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think that a lot of, a lot of powerful people were itching for a fight and I'm not going to give, I'm not giving Germany a pass at all. I'm just saying that England wanted to fight Germany because Germany was out producing stuff and Germany was still, um, interested in being like a conquering nation so i think we could have avoided a lot of problems had bismarck just occupied france for like 30 years though and the franco-prussian war kind of weeded out some of those marxists there is that when they took alsace and lorraine yeah and then they had a parade in paris right instead of conquering them because they, they were kind of like well they're the french we should respect their their surrender culture um but yeah they i feel like there was like a burgeoning you know, uh, a lot of me wants to blame World War One on the uh, sort of cultural conditions that you get from like um, democratic socialism, like the elite, the elitism that comes out of that. I'm not like I don't really have threads to to put them together, but like I don't imagine France is innocent in this, Germany's innocent in this, or England is innocent in this, and um, this idea that like one guy gets assassinated and everything cascades into like like massive groups of people being at war with each other. And 20 million people dying, you know, like that's insane. Right. Yeah. Uh, in the Reiko talk, uh, you know, he gives a lot of the uh, he sets the stage for all these alliances and and uh, things that are in place to kind of get triggered to make this happen. And the von Schlieffen plan, that's just basically knock out France and then uh, go over and knock out the rest of Russia. But if Russia mobilizes before that, then Germany is kind of stuck. 
And so that was yeah. like a, a big challenge for them. And and so um, Wilhelm, uh, he would sign Willie. He would send notes to cousin Nikki, like, hey, stop mobilizing and stuff, you know, because it's going to put us in a bad spot. And you're right. They were all related. And, um, you know, a lot of this really could have been avoided and, and probably should have been avoided. And had it been avoided, we wouldn't have seen um, the second conflict that was even larger. And we wouldn't have had the communist takeover in Russia. We wouldn't have had Nazis rising in Germany. Like the entire 20th century would have been far, far different had this not happened. Yeah. So I have to wonder, like, what kind of sort of um, overclass aspects were involved in that? Like nationalism is one thing. And I think a lot of people like to get under the idea that like, oh, these nationalist, these nationalist nations were like a powder keg because they were all like nationalism is inherently like evil generally in the, the current narrative um a lot of historians look at this and go like okay well it, it was like the last hurrah of the great elite but i feel like there was probably a lot of economic conditions that we don't examine you know what i mean because generally wars happen because somebody's like got too much freedom and they're producing stuff and trading it without the without being taxed properly or without having enough usury in the system you know what i mean like free free trading ports in sort of south the southern states was probably a bigger factor than slavery for the civil war, right? Stuff like that. Yeah. I think there were a number of factors and yeah, I think you're right. So, there. You and I haven't like, I haven't really examined this, but I do know that like, like France was a bit of a shit show for like the cultural Marxism, right? There would have been like a lot of, I don't know, like feminism and, and uh, well, that the narco communism essentially, right? The social, what do they call it? Uh, democratic socialism, right? You would have had that sort of coming up. Um, you talking about early 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, well, after, after Napoleon overextended himself trying to conquer the world, they so would have like fallen back in the early 18th century. Yeah, yeah, and then from there you get the Franco-Prussian War, which doesn't actually annihilate these sort of these conditions, and so you get this like intellectualism. I'm sure had a factor in there. Is this? I don't know. I kind of like I don't really have like the notes. Sort of, I haven't studied uh, the thinkers of that time the same way I have with like World War II or the Enlightenment period, and like what pe- the movers and shakers. But I'm assuming that like you know. Germany was over overproducing. They were highly industrialized and doing good. They had kind of like assholes in charge as, as well, right? I mean, they were they were sort of the driving force with the chemical weapons, right? But like England had no business fighting them, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. Except for this, like, wait, like you said, they got like the bare minimum of excuses to, to form these huge alliances and start putting people in the meat grinder. So I don't know. Like, it doesn't it doesn't feel like anybody was trying to get land though in this war. Well, I thought Germany was definitely trying to gain land. Like they the, were, the old I, empire, I, I guess, eh? That's what they're well, going for? Well, I think for? they were trying to not be uh, surrounded, as I understand it. Right. Did the, they have uh, access to the sea at that point? Yes. Well, yeah, the, I don't the know. North. Well, because Austria-Hungary was dying and and also being uh, under a bunch of pressure um, for, you know, Slav, Slavic people to secede and create their own nation. And then Germany would have been surrounded on all sides by hostile neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I understand it. Destroy this mad brute. So what, like, all right, when is this poster from? Are you talking about that propaganda poster? Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, what this, like, because I, I know that, like, they didn't like what, what Germany was doing. Um, and they had a bunch of assholes in charge. Anti-German sentiment. So I'm wondering, like, when this began uh, and if it just cascaded from the sort of scapegoating of, of them producing too much, right? Because like you said, like, all this prosperity was coming out of the Industrial Revolution and everyone was getting more and more free. So you kind of need to get everybody into a war to stop them from elevating themselves from being peasants. Mm. So I guess in that sense, it is just like the last hurrah of pseudo monarchies. Well, there's also this rising military industrial system coming in. Like all this wealth is generating and they're building up with all this new technology and they've got all this wealth to suck off of. Yeah. And I noticed what do, what do military contractors like, but to see their weapons put to use and what do generals like, but to also do that. And I noticed too, like a lot of the, the, he took a moment in the movie to talk about like all the canned goods and stuff. And that does a huge, huge military um, or government contracts, you know, sure. Jam, tea, spam, beans, all that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a huge, um, it's a called stimulus package. So that's what I'm assuming was happening is that um, the countries that were falling behind the curve, like, like Russia was a bit behind the eight ball in terms of industrial development, right? They so, were very much an agrarian country yeah. all up until the early 1900s. Yeah, so like, because they kind of fell a little bit behind with the same development that Europe was having, because you know the Mongols sort of decimated them for a little too long. Um, and so if they're if they're behind the eight ball on that, then it would be 
it would be a good stimulus package for that government to to have a war, right? No, maybe presented <laughs> as such, but but I, I don't mean I don't mean good in the actual sense, like objectively good. I mean it's a, it's a good it's a good control mechanism, is what I'm saying. A good economic control mechanism for the government to uh, reinstate its power over over the existing economy. Right, and it's a gaudy implementation of resources that's very showy and visible. Yeah, yeah. but it it belies the rot that it actually generates because it is a parasitical. Yes, uh, absolutely. But it's it's a stimulus package, right? Like it's war is the ultimate stimulus package. It's a it's a redistributive package. It's it's taking all these resources from other areas and injecting it into into a very specific stream. Yeah, I mean that's the same as any like if you bail out a credit card company or you put money uh, to build planes or or buses or something, it's all the same. Just war is like the most consumptuous and therefore has the appearance of being the best way to stimulate an economy. Well, it's the worst. It's the most destructive way. You're not yeah, even getting right? it's, it's an ultimate form of consumerism. So it's it's ideal because there's like for like the government, I mean, it's ideal. It's obviously like the opposite of ideal for us, right? Or or actual consumers. Yeah, but like it's a great way to keep everybody in line, right? Um, so like with the industrial revolution, everybody's competing, right? Everybody, I don't know, like the economies of these countries uh, were were coming up, right? So the stakes would have been a little bit higher. Um, and like yeah, I said, yeah. we had it, we had a burgeoning multinational the banking were system. Increasing the wealth was increasing yeah. prior to World War One. Generally, armies weren't that huge. They didn't, or they weren't so well supplied. You would have a few big battles, and then you'd be done. Yeah. But with World War One, you had so much wealth and resources, and like essentially total war, yeah. where the entire country is mobilized to fight this war. That you had a constant stream of supplies going to the front, and you just had this meat grinder where human bodies were just. Yeah. I mean, you saw the pictures with the gangrene and the trench foot. Oh, absolutely! It's horrifying. And it's very terrible. Yeah, I should probably pick a better word than good. <laughs> effective, I guess. This is yeah, more. yeah. But it's, it's not actually even effective either. Resources in exchange for loyalty to the state. Yeah. So it's... Um, we also had, like, the financing from, a, like I said, a, a multinational banking cartel that was forming out of the era as well, right? That's That was pretty new, right? So you get, like... Like, that system kind of came out of, the again, the French Revolution and, and then subsequently the Napoleonic era. Yeah, and then you get Bank of England and and the Federal Reserve had just been formulated just a few years prior. Yeah, so without getting like a tinfoil hat on, I have to wonder like how in debt the leaders of countries and the the governments of countries as an abstract were to these users, the the banking system. Because like you need to finance a war, right? And then the spoils are never going to outweigh what you've put into it at this point because it's just... We're not hitting each other with sharp sticks anymore. Wait, it's, way mean, too, it's cost ineffective right now. George Bush the, was wrong that, that the Iraq war would pay for itself in the bounty of oil. You know, it almost it almost did. <laughs> it's only off by a couple billion. We so just need to we just need to go in there a little bit longer. That's another benefit too, right? Because we broke up the Ottoman Empire and we drew borders wherever the fuck we wanted and then instilled um our governments we wanted afterwards, which I think was another motivation. Like, I mean, the reason we have the, the Kurdish conflict is because they just, they didn't give them a country. They're like, okay, uh, this is what Iraq looks like, and there happens to be these people here and these people here, and in the back left, there's there's another cluster of other ethnicity, and they all think that they are independent. Um, and and like, like I said, that was another product of World War One. Right. And yep. I, can't, I can't imagine that's like an accident to yeah, break right. up this massive empire, right? Very well may be. Now, we are actually getting a little bit long on this episode, so I want to make sure that we cover off a couple of um, oh, shit. any yeah. other notes that uh, anyone has. But before we do that, I, I do want to bring up this idea that I had, and it's a bit of a theory, but that the concept of this being an anti-war film, because it does take that grainy Charlie Chaplin-esque imagery and brings it almost to life to where it's actually visible, the horrors and the traumas that are, that are being exposed, is a way of... Um, showing it in a new way so that it does engender a visceral response. Like people will become um, aware of how it actually was versus seeing it sort of through this filtered lens, right? Because it seems to me that war and war reporting had been going along a certain path uh, from war to war, more and more um, of the, of the atrocities and damage that was being caused. And then the, and the traumas that were being experienced we're coming to light. And that also rose with a um, anti-war sentiment in the population. And we saw that in the 1960s in the United States, there's a big anti-war movement because of what was happening uh, after the Korean War and into the Vietnam War. But 
a lot of the reporting we were seeing uh, at that time was, you know, fairly unfiltered. Um, and then you move forward to our, our generation, you know, I grew up on like the, the Gulf War and it looked like a video game. And then the um, embedded reporters in Gulf War II were basically like in front of green screens and like made oh, up. Oh yeah, a lot drunk. of fake yeah, a lot of shit f- out of that era. Yeah, yeah, and it's like when Hillary Clinton said that that she was getting shot at getting off the plane in Yugoslavia or whatever. I mean, it never happened. There's video of it. You know, she's clearly. Oh, lying. but more to your point, there was literally blue screen reporting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They used fake footage. They made fake news. But but I think what what that is is doing is it's separating the horrors of the war from the visibility from the view of the public, and so that chops away at the root of the anti-war sentiment. Because if you don't see what's happening, then you're not aware of it, right? And so it's yeah. easier and easier to become more accepting of the propaganda and the lies that you're told in media and in, in uh, the government schooling. And and so I think that might be a big reason why we're seeing less and less uh, anti-war sentiment in today's day and age, uh, especially. I mean, like we talked about earlier, Tulsi is the only candidate out there who's even mentioning it. And she's being blackballed because of her stance on this when it was a very mainstream position, uh, even uh, last election or two two elections prior. Yeah. Well, we have this idea that um, there was some sort of golden age of journalism where like reporters did their job as like uh, the guardians of truth and they unearthed all these all this corruption. And that was never the case. The any any reporter that actually did honest journalism was an outlier. Right. We, we invent we invent these media technologies like the printing press and stuff. And we just started printing off propaganda flyers. Right. And, and I don't I don't mean to put them on a pedestal at a, that time in like the 60s and 70s. What I'm saying is that. Um, Perhaps the media military conglomerate complex didn't have their arms around it. So what did get out wasn't yeah. uh, controlled enough. What's interesting to me is this. OK, so like as media technology um, progressed, we've had this struggle with governments or uh, concentrations of power trying to dominate through narrative. And the the democratization of media is like indirect conflict with that. So it's like we develop a, a printing press or the internet and these technologies empower people and then they scramble to try to make that funneled up to a centralized thing again. Like the media has always been an extension of government. Right, yeah. And, and so like like you say, so yeah, like the reason that Vietnam was just such a fucking slog for the government was because uh, um, because they had footage of it. So what they had to do is like sort of undermine the whole anti-war movement with drugs and hedonism and embed CIA members through Mockingbird into the media to start like spinning, spinning the cultural, like the zeitgeist towards hedonism to try to get them off of the anti-war. Right. And, and right. then in today's age, we've got, um, you know, we're, we're, we're so filtered away from the carnage that when those things do get leaked, yeah, it's not the atrocities that people are upset about. It's the fact that they got leaked and the whistleblowers that bring them out are demonized. Yeah, sometimes for sure. But like I said, I think there's a lot of hope in the in the fact that like the more educated we get and the better media technology gets, the more people get ideas out and have conversations. So like I like I think you're right um, in sort of the, the core of people. But there's a lot of people that that uh, do have that conversation. Still. Right. And, I, you know, like there's a lot of YouTubers that are you know talking constantly about the news and all these atrocities happening. And like when there's a revolution. Uh, "Quote unquote revolution going on somewhere like Twitter's lit up, like from that place they're they're displaying. You know when the when the French police were beating like elderly people in the streets, like they had footage of it, right? Um, and so you know on on the on the end of the power centers here, they're spinning it with all sorts of distractions and other stories and and then spinning those stories. But like if you want to to see that, you can find it quite easily. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess to to come full circle back to this movie. I'm hopeful that it is seen as an anti-war film because it does bring out a new perspective in something that people might have been familiar with, but only from grainy footage to where they actually see how bad it was. And and if if this mm-hmm. got more um, more visibility, it's on HBO right now. It, it had a limited release in the United States. But if more people saw this, they might get sort of that feeling of, of an anti-war sentiment back more so than, you know, than they seem to have today. Yeah, like the only thing that really ever sort of covers up that the horrors of war are when we allow it to be an honorable thing. Like there's glory in all the sacrificing. And the only way that can occur is if they allow us to be like masculine again. So like one of those two things has to give in the narrative in order for them to make this positive, make war continue to be positive. 
because you can't you can't be like okay men men suck and violence is terrible and then simultaneously like the, these guys are sacrificed because like that's the narrative right is that like the soldiers sacrifice themselves for the betterment of society that's the that's how you justify these horrific conditions that the soldiers go through and all the trauma and and all the violence and so like yeah but i there's so much cognitive dissonance in the in the in the public yeah, no, I hundred percent for sure. It, but it's it like both of those things true at the same time. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It's a lot of double speak, a lot of double think. Yeah. But like I said, like the the it's becoming less and less efficient the more complicated an indoctrination system gets, right? Like they're they're to the point where you're not allowed to talk about anything. They have to police the perimeter of all conversations and just spin everything. And every time Veritas Project Veritas come, you know, leaks something, uh, even if it's got a bias and even if it's like heavily edited, and you can kind of see that they have a bias, you know, like they have a slant, like every time something like that happens, people are being like woken up. I, you know, I don't really like that. They, uh, they've, they've kind of commandeered the idea of woke, but like it is an enlightening experience, right. To be assaulted with these new ideas be like, Hey, this is what's happening in the world. Right. Right. And and we Whereas, never like, know what, what's going to be the, the thing that, that is that seed that gets planted that sparks somebody to go and dig further. I mean, I think it's been different for, uh, <laughs> for me for, as from you as for, you know, many, many people, there's a different thing that kind of catches them. That's one of the reasons why we do this show. We hope that people who listen, they they have a little bit of interest and in, and in maybe perhaps pursue it a bit further, like with the Dan Carlin podcast or with the links that we're gonna have on the um, from the Mises Institute on the show notes page for this one. Okay. Well, I feel like plugging my shit right now, actually, because that was what I was going for with this last album. It, like, I don't know, like you obviously like Boys Will Be Boys a lot better because it's like hyper masculine and really fun and right. And but, I, like just like I, me, what just, just like, like me. you, yeah. Um, oh, as a side note, the white feather campaign of calling men cowards for being for not joining was so effective that the British government had to issue like uh, like stay at home badges of honor so that men could wear to be because they needed like they couldn't have everyone join. They needed people to like produce munitions and and like run the post office and shit like that. Right. You can't have everybody go. So they had to they they had to issue these badges so enough men could stay home without being like accosted by these women holding out handing out feathers yeah that, that was kind of funny that's another interesting thing to um to see in the film at the end when the soldiers came home back to england how they were not treated very well and no, they, they're always discarded soldiers it sucks yeah and, and i remember that being a thing after the vietnam war but i thought that was because of all the anti-war sentiment uh in the population but in world war one you know it seemed like everyone was like gung-ho about oh you know war is going to be great let's go and do this it's adventurous it's noble it's whatever but then when they came home it's like the people didn't even really care it's like no and they've kind of like they've lost their manners too so like they're a little more um brutish and like give a shit about things less like they don't care as much about like certain rituals and and etiquette you know so they probably have a demeanor that's much more like comfortable with their own body and also like maybe a little bit of aggressiveness to it so that's going to put people off and then they weren't there in the war and they don't really appreciate what actually happened or anything so they just kind of discard these people and simultaneously it's like especially with like veterans and like like being wounded and stuff it's like really costs it's quite a, a burden for the society so it's better to just pretend it's not there and you know i think that's why we do that I don't yeah. know. I wonder if the propaganda was different, perhaps for World War II. I mean, that's when like those newsreels would play before movies, and it was all exciting about all the events that were happening, and it was more triumphant and celebrated as far as a victory goes. Oh yeah, we did. Yeah, they did have good a good return when they came home. They they were honored. Yeah, World War extent. II, but 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 only for a bit, like only aesthetically. Like a lot of men had a hard time finding work and stuff like that, right? Like the economy was booming though, so that that was the the benefit as well. Right. Well, it became booming because you you just released all these resources back into the free market, back into. Well, they also took yeah took resources from from the places you invaded too, right? Essentially, is that? Uh, I don't I don't know so much in World War Two. I know that it just took all these misallocated misallocated. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and and dump it back into the thing, right? Right. Well, and then then on top of that, there's like uh, the huge uh, on, and then the Fed would have been like printing money manipulating the the money so that like we'd have a uh, a boom kind of engineered out of that well and you can actually make cars and tires again um i mean there are no cars made from 1942 to 1945 yeah so you got this all this um stimulated industries that were producing tanks or whatever are now producing cars and they're all like they're already in fifth gear you know 
ready to go all these companies and stuff so yeah they'd be like it'd be like kind of a housing boom right where you'd just be overproducing shit and everything would become affordable and right know. right and, and then all the people who are earning money uh during the war producing these things they didn't have the money uh they didn't have anything to spend it on so then there was yeah. this nut of savings that kind of happened and then once consumer goods started being made again then then you had this flourishing but yeah because it would have been rationing too right yeah, yeah, there was a, a rationing, which basically it was like a double price kind of. So I, I think the governments hadn't learned that in World War One yet, that trick. And so you come back and it's just kind of same. Nothing's really changed. You're just kind of like maybe you're missing an arm, or maybe you're a bit of an asshole because like you've seen all your friends die and you <laughs> having a hard time dealing with that emotionally. Yeah. Well, um, what do you say we start to to wind this down? Uh, we're about over an hour here. So, Robert, do you have any other notes before we get into the final summary and review stuff? Well, I just wanted to get back to what Mike C. was talking about with the White Feather campaign. Um, the reason why that White Feather campaign was so effective, and it was basically where they would have these young, attractive groups of women rove around the streets. And if they saw any man of like fighting age out just out about, they would go up to him and shame him by putting this white feather on him or giving it to him. And, you know, public shaming is massively effective because it attacks, you know, your sense of masculinity, your sense of group um, belonging, right? You're seen as like an outsider. You're not contributing to the, the protection of the society. You're not seen as the protector. And that's your job as a man. So it's just this predatory state that turns the best things about men into a destructive force. And that's just another reason to really hate the state. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. All right. Well, um, I think, uh, I think we're going to have to call it here. So let's get into final summaries and reviews and, uh, Robert, you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. So Pete Jackson came out with this film and I didn't expect it from him, but you know, the guy does all kinds of stuff. He's done fantasy. He's done horror. He's now he's done anti-war or war. Um, Lot, usually when you get a war movie, it's more of a war propaganda film, but this just lets the soldiers tell their own story. So it ends up being an anti-war film, even though I would say the soldiers themselves at some point, you know, talk about how they are having a good time because there is some aspects of, like we said, this show to being around a bunch of other guys with a task to achieve. Men really are task driven. We like doing things. We like accomplishing things. We like fixing things. And sometimes we like, you know, taking orders and having something to do, the clear goal. Unfortunately, with war, that is rarely the case. And that often leads to a lot of frustration with the people that end up fighting wars is they say that they weren't allowed to win the war or they didn't see the purpose in what they were doing a lot of the time. Because a lot of the times it's less you know, it doesn't suit the the political needs of the people in charge to win the war or to take certain objectives or to destroy certain things. So that happened a lot in the Vietnam War. And that's well documented. But I'm sure in all wars, it's been the case where winning a war and fighting a war are not the same thing. And uh, you, you see that a little bit in this film um where you know waves of human bodies are thrown at barbed wire and machine gun nests to what you know take a, a couple hundred yards of ground what are you going to do that all the way to berlin <laughs> you know how many how many human lives is that going to cost you how many millions and millions of human lives is that going to cost you um i know the the generals were coming from a previous war they had to learn the new tactics i know the um the term rolling thunder was a technique of artillery bombardment invented in the world first world war because before that the artillery was not synchronized with troop movements but when they finally figured it out that they would bombard the area just ahead of the troops and kind of follow them as they advanced it was way more effective but before that you know you had a whole bunch of your own artillery landing on your own troops you had like what happened in the movie you're running into barbed wire that's not cut when it was supposed to be. So you're sitting there getting machine gunned while you're trying to cut barbed wire. That's always fun. Uh, anyway, yeah, the movie, the movie itself is is quite well done. It's it's a technical like achievement. Like like Mike said, I don't even know how exactly they did all this. I mean, either the AI is just getting really good at figuring out what you know these frames were supposed to look like. So maybe 
in the future, it'll look even better as the, the technology gets even better. But it really looks great now. And um, it's well worth your time to watch this. Uh, watch this. It's 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 pretty important film. It's well done. It's not as political perspective as I would like, but it's an honest film. I'll say that. That's my final word is that this is like a very, very honest film. So uh, a number, it's like an 8.5 if you want to give it a number. I don't know. All right. I think that's a good number. I think that works. Uh, and, and I have similar sentiments to you. I mean, it is pretty amazing. And it turns out that uh, they actually did colorize um, like about 100 hours of footage. And we only see about two hours of the footage here. But um, for the Imperial War Museum, uh, Peter Jackson's team ended up colorizing all of it, everything that they had. And so wow. it's pretty amazing. And, and I kind of view it as... Um, you know, in, in the right light, yeah, this is an anti-war film because of sort of my theory that, you know, it, it brings it more to life. It makes it more real for people. But it also seems almost as if it's made for a museum, like an exhibit to where you're watching and you're just hearing the recollections of the people and you're watching, um, you know, watching the footage and it's, you know, made more real. But it's also very direct and kind of dry and there's no real sense of place or time. Like it, it was really unclear to me in watching this, whether I was watching um, sort of a progression across a number of years or if it was a couple of weeks or, you know, what was really happening. Um, you know, and if I were to rewatch it again, I, I, I don't I still don't know if I could pick up on it. I think by the end, it was the end of the war and the beginning was the beginning of the war. But that's the span of like four years. But it certainly isn't presented as such. And, you know, there's no sense of place. And I think that was intentional on Peter Jackson's part because he wasn't trying to provide like a. a you know, a, a historical account of like this battle and this battle and this event and that event. And this happened at this time, this happened at another time, because you get that, you know, all, all over the, all over the place, right? There's, there's accounts of it. Um, all of those big events and big battles uh, and history books and, and documentaries and things uh, already done. So in, in a way it's sort of like this um, almost more, you know, what was the experience like for the people who were there and how do we make it more real? But in that I sort of didn't, get the the sense of where things were at in the progression and so that was a bit of a demerit for me so i'm going to go with an eight so not your 8.5 but it's still really well done it's an amazing technological achievement and i do highly recommend that people do check it out it is on hbo right now and it is available for purchase which our guest mike c had to do in canadian funds um unfortunately but they they still accepted them and now he owns the uh, digital rights to this film himself uh, yeah, well. Read the fine print. <laughs> so, Mike, why don't you give us your final summary and review, and then we will uh, button up this episode of The Last Nighters. Um, yeah, I would define objective evil as the subversion of a laudable quality to the um, subjugation of the person and the betterment of and control to uh, you know a concentration of power. If that makes sense. So, like when a government takes a good quality, or even when Coca-Cola takes a good quality that we have and subverts it or inverts it to something to nefarious end. I think that's truly like how I would define evil. And you see this sort of through the objectivity of, of Jackson just presenting like the, the men just talking about what happened to them and everything, um, which I, I sort of caught on at the beginning. Like a lot of the, the beginning, like they all just kind of signed up and everything was good, you know? And like, it's a laudable quality to want to like defend your home and things like that. It's a laudable quality to like want to be a hero and things like that. And it's 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 just terrible to see that used against a young man. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And I think like coming back to the narrative of the actual sort of timeline of this, I think there's an emotional arc that makes sense. And then it just kind of books ends with the beginning of the war and the end of the war and everything is is in line and. Uh, it makes sense in a vague way. I think like there's a, there's a real, like, well, there is a through narrative to it. So I wouldn't, I didn't feel lost at any point. Um, it, it does kind of almost belong in a museum. It's certainly a documentary approach, but uh, there was like, he managed to tell a story uh, in a very like effective and efficient way. So I'm quite impressed. I'd say nine probably. All right. Very... Um, and like I said, I forgive him. I forgive him for uh, making the Hobbit essentially. The Hobbit trilogy, the whole thing. Yeah, well, actually, specifically that orc that was like underneath the ice, and you think he's dead, and then he like comes out of the ice. That wow, part, he gets a pass for that. The Jar Jar Binks of the Hobbit. Yeah, I just that it, that scene just made me like I'm like you've betrayed us as audience members, but now I feel like he's back in the black. So all right, well, very he had good. Read in his ledger before for sure. <laughs> 
Well, thank you. Thank you again for um, filling in on this episode. Uh, you brought an interesting perspective, as you always do. And I feel like that we had a, an entirely different conversation than we were going to have had. Yeah, I hope I didn't sound too crazy. Oh, yeah. I felt a bit kind of out of it, like trying to pull these threads together. But no, I think I think that's enough. I mean, just, just okay. get people interested and uh, they can do their own research and see what they can find out. But, you know, definitely check out this film and, uh, you know, have, have your family and friends watch it as well because it is amazingly done it's a new perspective on an old event that people are probably already a bit familiar with and uh that that can only benefit you know truth and light in the world uh seeing things for what they actually are and 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 how bad things were uh that these guys went through and it it the thing that stuck with me in watching this was just what an atrocious waste war is you know just just, (laughs) that's fair (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and the arbitrary nature of which which side are you on? So we're gonna try and kill each other now. Like those yeah, German guys, British guys are like, oh, they're they're just fine. They're good guys. They went to school with us, and we're we would have been friends, but yeah, instead we're just trying to kill each other. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So uh, anyway, that that's our take on uh, they shall not grow old for Armistice Day of uh, this year. The the uh, end of the war was uh, 101 years ago uh, on the 11th, and so uh, thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Thank you, Mike C. People can check you out at Mechanical Dream Revolution on SoundCloud. We will have a link to that on lastnighters.com slash 97. And next week, we have another guest coming up. Uh, we're going to be doing the uh, Breaking Bad movie, El Camino, with Jared Wall of Anarcho Land and um, Breaking Anarchy, I think is what his uh, his other website is. And it's an, it's an analysis of the Breaking Bad series with libertarian themes spelled out. So anything he finds in the series, he writes a book about it and he does articles about it on his, uh, on his website. And it, it reminds me of what we kind of do on this show where we talk about movies from a certain perspective. He's looking at a very specific uh, and very well done uh, television series in Breaking Bad. So we'll be having him next week for the El Camino movie, which should be a lot of fun. Absolutely. One of my favorite series of all time. So I haven't seen the El Camino yet. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Available on the old Netflix. So uh, people do check that out. If you would like to uh, have watched that before listening to us talk about it and say a bunch of nonsense, it'll, it'll be a good time. Um, but uh, Mike, thank you again for joining us. I hope you can stick around for some of our Kathleen Turner overdrive, which is the bonus content available for our Patreon supporters. And they can find that at lastnerds.com slash Patreon. Uh, any other ways people can support us, Robert? I know you've got a good list. You memorized this. You, you've said it a number of times and you can, uh, you can bark it out on command. Well, I make it up as I go along, but people can leave a like, they can support us on Facebook. They can sign up to our Facebook group. They can subscribe to us on YouTube. They can leave a review on iTunes. They can go to trubster.com and buy some merch. They can uh, tell their friends about it. They can tell themselves about it in their dreams. They can tell their family about it. They can, um, uh, Yeah. They can write in the sky about it if they want to like rent a plane and do that. But anything they do that promotes the cause of liberty uh, is aces in my book. So thank you in advance for all those great things. You're the best. All right. Very good. Any final words from you, Mike, before we get into some bonus content? Uh, war is really bad. Unless it's good, I guess. <laughs> unless it's necessary. Quotation marks. Um, yeah. Uh, they didn't take those uh, babies out of incubators in Kuwait. Uh, that was a lie. So. Don't listen to the media. That's, that's they're full of shit. I keep hearing this. Uh, the media is an enemy of the people, and uh, it's starting to seem more and more well, accurate. Is an extension of the state. Uh, so, by virtue of the libertarian principle, which I like, I'm more of a minarchist, I think, or like a libertarian fascist sort of. Um, so, but the principle of anarchy or, or moving towards liberty is that you know the state needs to be put in check, and media, the mainstream media, tends to be an extension of. Uh, power structures so they are the same people right not a check at all they're an enabler yes absolutely provide some cover so um try to spread the word uh you 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 talked earlier about um i'll I'll make this really quick you talked earlier about how to plant those seeds and that's what memes are so we just have to figure out how to reduce ideas down to getting people to question stuff and be willing to like plant those seeds and come back in a couple years i Epstein didn't kill himself all right very good well Thanks again, Mike, for, for joining us. And thank you, audience, for listening to us. You can find the show notes more at lastnarrows.com slash 97 and also on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. And with that, we'll say good night from last night.
In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.